And so we're in Revelation. I'm sure you're excited we're back in it. Some of you would rather have a sermon on money than Revelation. But uh, last week, Paul and Peter, the two apostles, did a great job. Um, If you weren't here last Sunday, which I know a number of you were away for various reasons, do listen to the podcast. They were two excellent messages. And uh, so do avail of those. And to those listening online, hello to you. I know we have a lot of people who listen online because... We, we hear about it uh, as we travel around. And hopefully by next week or the week after, we will also have the uh, video podcast. I know, so you will be able to see this in all its glory. <laughs> this Shekinah glow on uh, YouTube. We will be putting those up on YouTube. So hopefully that's being installed. We've invested in that, and hopefully that's going to be installed this week. But if you have a Bible... Turn to Revelation 7 as I come to prayer this morning. I have been uh, dealing with one of the worst strains of man flu ever seen in Craig Avon for the ladies. That's a cold. Um, so do bear with me this morning if I sniffle my way through this. But let's pray and ask for God's Holy Spirit to help. May he help us to hear what he wants to say. His word is his authority. His word is life. His word is his power his word is is his his heart for his people and so holy spirit the words that you inspired the words that you inspired john the apostle to write down on that island of patmos two thousand years ago may you take those words and supernaturally reveal jesus to us through them today in his name we pray amen let me ask you a question how many of you bought something during black friday be honest It's crazy, isn't it? I mean, it is actually crazy that this Black Friday thing, and it's not just, it used to be just a Friday, now it's like a week, and then there's Cyber Monday, and it's just, the whole thing has become extreme. And I was thinking about Black Friday and how it started, and it it started in America, it's the day after Thanksgiving, Thursday in America was Thanksgiving, it's the day when you get together and you remember all the things that are really significant and important in your life, your family, your closest friends, and and your health, and you give thanks to God for all the most important things in your life and then what do you do the next day you go and spend money on things you don't need with money you don't have to impress people you don't like and it is just ridiculous it is a crazy world we are living in it is a world of contradictions where one day we're giving thanks and the next day we are just getting caught up in the spirit of consumerism and that is our world today the biggest church in the area is not a church it is Rushmere. It will be more busy this afternoon than any church in Portadown, Craigavon, Lurgan or anywhere else because we worship at the altar of consumerism. Yesterday we had the joy of doing nothing which every couple loves to do with a six-year-old. We went to Ikea. Yeah. My therapist tomorrow will hear all about it. Um, really, it is as close to the tribulation as you will find here on earth. And uh, that is where we left off. And speaking of Black Friday, one of the horses that we saw, of the, four, of the four horsemen, was black. And it was actually the horse to do with finance, commerce, and money. And so maybe there's something in that. But uh, we left off. Uh, we have had a little interval, a little break, which I think we need. I'm going to have decided that we're going to fast forward a little bit through Revelation. So we're going to look at chapter 7 today, and then we're going to start chunking it a little bit. Because quite honestly, the thought of getting through to... Easter with this is more than I can handle right now. So we will be looking at 8 to 11 next week. 
Uh, you're welcome. And, uh, and so we, we will be doing that. But let me just give a quick review. Uh, the book of Revelation is a revelation by God given to the Apostle John. He's an old man. He's about 90 years old. He's been following Jesus his whole life. Because of his love for Jesus, he's been exiled to this little island called Patmos. And on the Lord's day, he's worshipping and he gets this vision, this revelation. And the word revelation, apocalypsis, literally means an unveiling. It's like the curtain is pulled back. He gets to see behind the scenes of heaven. That what we see in this world is the physical, visible, tangible world, but there's more to life than meets the eye. And that behind all the persecution and suffering that uh, God's people are enduring, there are spiritual forces at work. And so that's chapter one. And we said this, and this is the most important thing to remember through Revelation. Revelation is not a, a revelation of the end times. It's not a revelation of the Antichrist. It is a revelation of Jesus Christ. That we need to keep Jesus before us throughout the book of Revelation. In chapters 2 and 3, we have the seven letters to the churches. Chapters 4 and 5, we have this great scene of worship around the throne, where the angels and the 24 elders are worshipping around the throne. Then we got to chapter 6 a few weeks ago, which was the beginning of the tribulation. The tribulation is really God's judgment. We had these this, this, the, this scroll with seven seals, and as each seal was opened, we had judgment, we had wrath, we had God purging the earth of the effects of sin and the infection of sin. We had, uh, we had this picture of, 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 of the earth being, uh, what's the word, being, being oh, going through turmoil, going through devastation, going through the extremes of disruption. And there's two types of judgment that we saw. There's passive judgment. And God's passive judgment is simply this, where he takes his hand of blessing and protection off us and leaves us to our own devices. And we've all experienced that. As I said a few weeks ago, sometimes Satan didn't have to do anything to me because I was doing a good enough job on my own. Satan could put his feet up because I was making a big enough mess of my own. And God just leaves us sometimes to our own devices and says, you know what, I have tried to stop you, but you have free will. And if that's the direction you want to go down, you keep going. But I'm always here when you get to the end of it and make a mess of it. So there's his passive judgment, but there is also his active judgment. There is a time when God steps in and he says no more. And he pours out his judgment and wrath purging the earth and he is changing and fixing everything that is not how it was created to be but was distorted at the fall. God created the world perfect. He said it is good, it is very good but through sin, through rebellion, this earth, humans and all creation have been infected and affected and at some stage God is going to call time and say it is enough. He's going to purge. He's going to pour out his judgment and wrath and he's going to make things right. And the reality is that many people today just don't like that picture of God. We like the loving God. We like the God of grace. We like the big daddy in the sky who it doesn't matter what we do loves us anyway. We like this picture of God who's just like a big cuddly teddy bear and never actually gets annoyed about anything. We prefer a nice God. And some people would try to justify it like this. They say, that's the Old Testament God. We don't believe in that God. We believe in the New Testament God. Let me tell you, the book of Revelation is as New Testament as you can get. 
It's the last book of the New Testament. There are not two gods. There's not the Old Testament God and the New Testament God. There is one God. And this is the picture that we see of God in Revelation. And while I might struggle with a God of judgment and a God of wrath, I would struggle even more with a God who never judged anything and never got angry about anything. I would struggle with a God who lets child abusers and rapists and pedophiles and traffickers and terrorists and tyrants and and wickedness just go on and never be punished. I would struggle more with that than I would with a God who one day says, I have had enough and you're going to face the consequences of your sin. One Sunday night recently we were talking about hell. And I used this illustration and I realized that some of you were here and some of you weren't. But uh, this is the illustration I often use because people, people say, you know what, God's primary attribute is love. It's all about love. And if we can just love everyone and if everybody loved everyone, everything would be all right. And let's just love everyone. Let's, let's get matching sweatshirts and hug each other. And, and, and God's just loving us all touchy feeling. And if we all love everyone, everybody will go. And, and you know what? The Bible does say in First John, God is love. But in Isaiah 6 and in Revelation, it says this. He's holy, holy, holy. And I think of his holiness as the umbrella that covers everything. And love is part of that. Justice is part of that. Mercy is part of that. Grace is part of that. All of it comes under the umbrella of his holiness, of his total otherness. And if you were to say to me, well, I just like to think of God as love. I would like to say to you that you've got possibly a very one-dimensional view of God and possibly even a false view of God. If you were to come to me and say, you know what, I really love Becky. And I'd go, what do you like about Becky? And you'd say, well, she's six foot two and has got long dark hair. I love Becky. I'd go, Becky hasn't got dark hair and she's not six foot two. And you go, but that's just how I like to think of her. I'd go, you don't know Becky. You can't have a relationship with her because you have a completely wrong picture of her. And people today say, I like to think of God as the big daddy in the sky. I like to think of God. And I go, you can think of God however you want, but it's not the God of the Bible you're relating to. Imagine if you said to me, what's your dad like? And and this is the illustration he used when we was talking about hell. And I go, he's really loving. And you'd go, oh, that's great. And I'd go, yeah, he's just, he's so loving. And you go, well, what do you mean? I'd go, he's just, he's so full of love. And you go, well, what if somebody broke into your house? And he, dad would just love them. He would just love them. I was looking at him there. And I know he wouldn't. I've seen, I've seen him in action, believe me. <laughs> but, you know, and you go, well, what if he was attacking your mom? Oh, he would just love them. He would just put his arm and just love them and hope that by loving them they would stop. No. At some point, love becomes something very corrupt and distorted if it's only love. But if he's righteous and if he's just, love is part of that. But love protects those who need protected. And wrath and judgment prevents and stops those who need to be prevented and stopped. And so we need to get away from this very one-dimensional view of God. And so when we come to the wrath and the judgment of God in the Bible, I know it can be uncomfortable, but I would rather have a God who deals with evil, deals with injustice, deals with wickedness, deals with sin, deals with all the 
the rubbish, I nearly said a different word there, going on in our culture than a God who just turns a blind eye to it all and says, oh, sure, it's no big deal. And so when we come to this, we need to understand that our God is holy and one day he will say, enough is enough. And so we went through the first six seals in chapter six and we saw this clash when Jesus starts to make things right when his kingdom starts to invade the earth, there's this clash of two kingdoms. And the way I likened it was to those tectonic plates that you learned about in geography in P7. Those tectonic plates that, that are constantly moving and eventually they get together and enough pressure builds up and there's an eruption. And that's kind of what happens. That is the clash of two kingdoms, the kingdoms of this world, the kingdoms of Satan and the kingdoms of God. There is this pressure that builds up and things happen. And we see deception, first of all, was the first horse. We see leaders claiming to bring peace, leading many to follow, but then that changes. And we see escalating war and conflicts. We see famine, economic meltdown, hyperinflation, natural disasters, earthquakes, pollution, signs in the sky. And the question that is always asked, well, these have always happened. There's always been earthquakes. There's always been natural disasters. There's always been tsunamis. There's always been uh, different things have happened. Yes, but look at what it says. It talks about... Mal, would you skip on a few slides there? Two slides? No, back? Yeah. All of these are the beginning of the birth pains or the birth pangs. So all of these things that it's saying, these are the beginnings of the labor pains, the birth pangs. Now, I, I spent six years ago, I spent uh, two days going through labor pain. I mean, not, but do you know, like the guys will understand, like you feel it, like you, they, they call it, what is it that, that you actually can feel what your wife's feel? Like for, Becky went into labor on a, like a Thursday night, or Thursday night and Elijah was born on Sunday morning. And I felt those two days, okay, I experienced those birth pangs and I know what they're like, okay, I fully understand ladies. Um, yeah. Honestly, I have had a sore toe and things like that before. I know what pain is like. Um, but, but, but here's the thing, that, that they began on Thursday night, but he was born on Sunday morning. But as the birth came closer, the contractions increased in intensity and frequency. The contractions increased in intensity and in frequency. I'm looking at Ruth here, who's about to pop in a few weeks. It'll all be good. You'll be fine. 14 epidurals, you'll be fine. Um, but as, as each contraction eased and you thought, that's it, another one came and it was stronger. And then that went away and you thought, we're done. And then another one came and it was stronger. And that's kind of the picture of what it's going to be like in the end times. Just when one disaster happens, just when one famine happens, just when one earthquake happens, just when war, one war is over, you're going to go, we're done now. And then another one's going to come behind it. And another one, and another one. And it's going to get more intense and it's going to get more infrequent and it's going to get more intense and more frequent. And eventually... Jesus will return. And can't we see that happening right now? I mean, that's what we see in our world today. I was just jotting down different things that I've witnessed. Like the wildfires in California, for example. I have never, I mean, I'm 43 years old. I have never seen wildfires like that in America, ever. It just feels like, I mean, huge areas the size of Craig Avon, Portadown and Lurgan just burnt. I've never seen anything like that. Some people are thinking that would be a good thing. Craig often pointed out in Lurgan. I didn't say that. But, uh, 
But seriously, uh, increasing division between nations. In 1990s, it felt like the Cold War was over and Russia was going to be everybody's friend and it was sort of powerless. And now Russia is becoming a superpower again under Putin with uh, much more hostility towards the West. Berlin Wall came down. Now walls are being built, saying no more. There's greater polarization than ever. There's China and the islands on the South Island Seas. There's the rise of nationalism and populism all across Europe. There's the breakdown of the European dream, which we are going to probably see part of this week with Theresa May's wonderful agreement. Um, Again, I'm saying nothing. Um, in In America, America is basically two countries in one right now. It is that divided. It is one of the most divided nations on the earth right now between conservatives and liberals. South Africa, after Nelson Mandela was released, which was incredible, we thought the end of apartheid and and everything would be great. And South Africa is going through a mess right now as farmers are being killed and their lands being taken away and the economy is a mess. Immigration, whether we like it or not, is a huge issue. Whatever side of the fence you... immigration is not going away there's hurricanes there's tsunamis there's famine there's disease there's terrorism there's the growth of radical islam there's the middle east there's iran there's the hatred against israel which is unrelenting and countries all around it who want to see it destroyed and removed from the earth there's the gender wars there's radical feminism there's transgenderism which we heard about last week there's the persecution of christians you don't need to be a prophet to see that it's all coming to a climax. You don't need to have some special divine insight to go, things are increasing in intensity and frequency, and we very possibly are living in the end of the end times. I'm always so reluctant to say that, but I actually do believe that. I believe that if not in my lifetime, in my son's lifetime, that will be the end as we know it. I could be wrong, and I hope I am in one sense. I don't care either way. Jesus is coming back. Um, But the six seals are open, and we see panic. We see fear. We see people hiding in caves. And the question we're left with at the end of chapter 6 is this. Who can stand? Look at the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hidden caves, and among the rocks and mountains. And they called to one... They called on the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of the wrath is coming. Who can stand? That is the question among the great and the good and the rulers of earth is the wrath of God. They had all the power. They had all the authority. And now the tables have been turned and they're going, who can stand? And that's what we're going to find out in chapter 7. Who can stand through the tribulation? Who can survive? How do we get through it? But after the sixth seal is open, we have this short pause. We have this interlude. And we've got to understand this about the book of Revelation. It is a little bit tricky at times, but we've got to understand this. That the book of Revelation is not necessarily chronological. It's not necessarily always what happened next. It's what John saw next. It's not what happened next. It's what John saw. Saw next. It wasn't always written in the exact order or the timeline that things happened. It's how John saw them. So it's not what happened next. It's what does John see next. And the question is, 
who can stand through the tribulation. That's where he left off, and so he rewinds to answer that question. It's almost like you're watching ITV, and you get to the end of a particular, the first half, okay, of a football match. And you're not sure what's going to happen, but then you go, actually, I'm going to go back and plus one, or minus one, go back an hour and watch it in BBC and watch it from a different angle. I'm going to get a different perspective. I'm going to, to see it from a different place. Or a wedding photographer. Sometimes I look at wedding photographs and I'm amazed because there's the photographs of the groom and the groomsmen and everybody arriving at the church, but at the same time, they've also got photographs of the bride and the bridesmaids getting ready. And I'm thinking, how did they do that? It was obviously two photographers in two different places giving us two perspectives of the same event. That's what Revelation does. So Revelation 6 was giving us a tribulation. Revelation 7 is the other photographer telling us what's also happening at the same time. And so at the start of it, the angels stop everything. Look at verses 1 to 3. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind blowing on the land or sea or upon any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and sea. Do not harm the land or sea or trees until, and this is the key bit, until we put a seal on the forehead of the servants of our God. And so we're back at the start of the tribulation again. And God says, stop the bus one second. We're not going to do anything until something happens. We are going to put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of the living God. What is a seal? Well, it's a mark of ownership. It was a stamp. In the first century, slaves were actually stamped on their forehead as a mark of ownership so people could identify who their slave owner was. Before the scrolls were unsealed, God's people are sealed. It's a mark of ownership. And what God is saying is put a seal on their forehead. Why? Because I want people to know that they belong to me. They're my people. I want an identification mark on my people to say that they're not like everyone else. If you're a Christian this morning, you belong to God. You have been purchased by God, by the blood of Jesus Christ. You belong to him. And nothing or no one can ever take you away from him. Once you are truly saved... You might suffer, you might sin, you might struggle, you might even backslide. But he will not let you go. If you belong to him, he will not let you go. For years I wandered from Christ and he never let me go. If you are truly born again, he will not let you go. Look at these verses from John 10, 27 to 29. My sheep listen to my voice. This is Jesus speaking. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. And look at what he says. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. That is a beautiful verse. 
It's like we've got this double protection almost. Jesus says, if you're a Christian, if you've given your life to Christ, no one can snatch them out of my hand. And then the Father has also put a protection and no one can snatch them out of his hand. And you know what the great thing is? That, that my ability to make it to heaven is not dependent on how well I hold on to him. It's how he holds on to me. And that's good news. That's good news for you this morning if you have a son or daughter who used to follow Christ and has wandered away. That's good news for you this morning if you know someone who when they were young, when they were a teenager, when they were early 20s, gave their life to Jesus and they're going through a difficult time and they don't seem to be following him anymore. It is not dependent on their ability to keep hold of him. It's dependent on his ability to keep hold of them. And he has the ability to do that. I, I say I became a Christian before my 15th birthday. But my, my dear Granny Cooney, who is with the Lord now, um, we found this tape years ago of me probably, I don't even know what age I was, I was probably eight or nine, and I was in her front garden sitting, and it's a tape they recorded of me asking Jesus into my heart uh, as, a, as an eight or nine-year-old. And I don't even know how sincere I was then as an eight or nine-year-old, but you know what? God knew. And once you truly believe in Christ, he doesn't let you go. You might think you've let go of him, but he never lets go of you because he knows his own. So what is this seal? What is this mark that identifies us from everyone else? Well, the Bible makes that clear. It's the Holy Spirit. Look at what the Bible says. Now, it is God who makes both of us and you stand firm in Christ. Here's how we stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us. And what is that seal? He put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Ephesians 1.13. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The moment you become a Christian, the moment you say yes to Jesus, the moment you invite him to be your Lord and Savior, his Holy Spirit comes and lives within you. And that is the seal of your redemption. God marks you with his spirit. And he marks you with his presence living inside you so that he can see those who belong to him. Notice it says the marks on their forehead. In other words, it's visible for all to see. What's that saying? I think it's saying that the, that the, the seal inside you, the Holy Spirit inside you, will work outside in a way that people will be able to identify you. The fruit of the spirit. That actually it's not just I've got the Holy Spirit inside me and nobody knows. It will actually change your lifestyle. The Holy Spirit resides inside every Christian. And that is the guarantee. It is the seal that we belong to God. You belong to God. You know, God loves everyone. The Bible says that very clearly, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. But he has a special attention and affection to his children. And not many people say that. When we're evangelizing, we seem to indicate that God loves everybody. Uh, you know, Christians don't. And, and he does, he loves everyone. But I want to say to you that if you're a child of God, he has a special attention towards you and a, and a special affection for you. He has a unique attention to those who belong to him there's a difference between being created by god and being a child of god 
Everyone's created by God, but not everyone is a child of God because you only become a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Only those who are adopted into his family are his children. You know what? I think all the kids in this church are great, most of them. But there's only one who's my child. I care about one more than the others because he's my child. When you go to a school play, you might watch all the children, but there's only one you're looking at. If you're at the school gate, all the kids are streaming out of school, you might see 100 kids, 200 kids, there's only one you're looking for. Why? Because they're yours. And it's exactly the same. God looks at the earth and he loves the earth, but he knows his children. He puts a special mark on his children. And he says that mark won't isolate you or insulate you from the tribulation, but it will bring you through it. The wrath that will judge the earth, you will be free from that wrath. It doesn't mean you won't be killed. It doesn't even mean you won't be martyred or go through pain or suffering. But you will not endure the second death, which is really the worst death of all, which you will get to. It's a bit like if you remember back in the Exodus, when the angel of death passed through Egypt. God's people, what did they do? They put the blood of the lamb above a doorpost. The angel of death still passed over their house, but they weren't touched. Why? Because they had the mark of the blood of the lamb. If you're a Christian, when the wrath of God comes on the earth, the Holy Spirit lives inside you, the blood of Jesus covers you, and you will be spared the wrath of God. Look at what 2 Timothy 2.19 says. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands, sealed with this inscription, the Lord knows those who are his. The Lord knows those who are his. You belong to God. You belong to him. And you know, every parent feels their child's pain, don't they? Like sometimes parents feel their child's pain more than their child. <laughs> because if you hear parents, and know what I mean by that. Like when your child hurts, sometimes you hurt more than they do. Remember when we lived in Port Stewart? One morning we heard this almighty scream. And uh, it was about 8 o'clock in the morning we ran out and Elijah's finger was hanging off. Literally. He had got it closed in the door and literally it was hanging by a thread. And we brought him to hospital. They had to take it off and put it back on in the Ulster Hospital, go through plastic surgery and stuff. He actually went through it pretty much like a wee trooper. It nearly killed us. We feel, and the father is not some distant, unemotional father. He feels our pain. And so whatever you're going through this morning, if you're his child, if you're his son, if you're his daughter, if you're struggling, he feels that. He knows your heartache. He's with you in your struggle. You're sealed. It doesn't mean you're insulated from suffering. It does mean you're sealed. It doesn't remove us from heartache. It does mean you're sealed. And he surrounds us within the suffering and carries us through it. Let's get to the 144,000 that it talks about in verse 4. We're getting there. Who are those who are sealed? They're God's people. Verse 4 says, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. There has been so much debate and so much spelt about this verse. Who are the 144,000? The Jehovah's Witnesses. 
used to say the 144,000 were only Jehovah's Witnesses, and then it turned out one day they discovered they did a count there were more than 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses. True story. And then they had to reconfigure it and go, well, it's actually only the elite, the special Jehovah's Witnesses. And how do you figure that out? I don't know. So they had to reconfigure How Who are these 144,000? Well, some people would say that they are Jews who come to faith during the tribulation. And I can see where they get that from because we get the 12 tribes of Israel and it seems to say that clearly. That, 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 that it's Jews who come to faith during the tribulation. That somehow the Jews will realize that Jesus is the Messiah. They may have rejected him, but they will want now accept him. And I want to say to you this morning that God isn't finished with Israel yet. Some people would say that, that the church has replaced Israel. It has not. The church fulfilled God's promises to Israel, but we were engrafted into them. Romans 9 to 11 makes that very clear. God has not finished with Israel. He has an eternal covenant with them. Going back to Genesis 12 with the call of Abram, we are the recipients of the blessings of that covenant. And one day there will be a great revival among the Jews as they recognize that Jesus is the Messiah and they bow to him as Lord. The Bible makes it clear that we as Gentiles have the privilege through Christ of sharing in the, the blessings of the Jews through faith in a Jew called Jesus. So God has not finished with Israel. So some believe the 144,000 refers to Jews, and I can see the case for that. However, as I have studied, I am not so sure. While I do believe there will be a great end time revival, the Bible says in Romans 11, that once the fullness of the Gentiles come in, then all Israel will be saved. I don't think it means every single Jew. It means every, every, someone from every tribe will be saved. Okay, So there will be a revival, but I don't think I believe that that is what this is talking about here for a few reasons. One, the 12 tribes listed here are different than the 12 tribes listed anywhere else in the Bible. Okay, But the main reason, that's a bit technical, the main reason is this. Remember that numbers and revelation mean something. Numbers are not just numbers, they are symbolic. And if you go back to Revelation chapter 4, remember the 24 elders around the throne, bowing before the throne, before the Lamb? Who were the 24 elders? 12 of them were the apostles, 12 of them were the 12 tribes of Israel. In other words, 12 represents God's people. 12 from the Old Testament, 12 from the New Testament, the totality of God's people throughout all generations were bowing towards the throne, okay? So 12 is the number for God's people in the Bible, okay? That's clear. 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles of Jesus representing all of God's people. How do we get 144? I went to Kleiner, even I can tell you that. 12 times 12. Okay? 12 times 12. In other words, God's people times God's people. How do we get a thousand? 10 times 10 times 10. 10 is the number of completeness. When you do it by 10 by 10 by 10, it's in a totality. It's a huge number. It's a huge complete number. So 12 times 12 times 10 times 10 times 10. It's in it's the totality, the completeness of God's people throughout all ages. It's such a huge number, we can't count it. That is what I believe this is saying. That all of God's people throughout the Old Testament, all of God's people throughout the New Testament are the ones who will be sealed who are the ones who are going to have God's mark upon them. And I believe the next verses back this up. If you look at verses 9 and 10, we see that it's from every nation, tribe, people, 
and language. In other words, those before the throne are multi-ethnic, multinational, and multilingual, not just Jews. And within the great diversity, there's unity. They're wearing white robes. They're holding palm branches in their hands. When did we see palm branches held in the hands? Remember when Jesus rode into Jerusalem? It was a sign of victory and celebration. And they're wearing white robes. And we see that later in verses 13 and 14. If you go forward or wherever, yeah. That one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where do they come from? I answered, so you know. He said, these who, those who have come through the great tribulation, they, are, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. I love that verse. When you wash something white and blood, it shouldn't go white. <laughs> When you wash anything in blood, it shouldn't go white. And yet, no matter how dirty we are, no matter how filthy we are, no matter where we've been, no matter what we've done, if we're washed in the blood of the Lamb, he makes us pure, he makes us clean, he makes us white. I was reading about that martyr this week, who, that young man, John Chow, I'm sure some of you read about him, who went to the Indian island to share the gospel and can I be really honest my first response was that was a bit stupid I'm just being really honest and as soon as he landed on the island they they killed him and then I I just I read a bit more about it and he actually he predicted his own death but he had decided it was worth it to reach these people these were people who have never been reached by the gospel and this is what he wrote in his diary just a day before he went there he said I'm scared Watching the sunset and it's beautiful. I'm crying a bit and I'm wondering if it's the last sunset I'll see. Lord, is this island Satan's last stronghold where none have heard or even had that chance to hear your name? And he went fully aware. And I just, I I believe that, that the Lord will honor his bravery and his courage. That the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And that he right now is before the Father and he's dressed in white. But look at what they're singing. We have this great display of people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. But look at what they're singing. Salvation belongs to our God. And to the Lamb who sits on the throne. While there is diversity, there is also great unity. While there's people from every tribe and tongue and nation, the one thing that unites them is their worship of Jesus. And one of the things I love about this church is I look out at maybe 180 people in this room right now. Every one of you is unique. You have your own distinctive ways. You have your own quirks. You have your own personalities. But the one thing that unites us all is Jesus Christ. And we do not want everybody to think exactly the same in this church. In fact, we would discourage everybody from thinking the same. We don't want you all, but what we do want is for us all to be united around one thing, and that is Jesus Christ. And notice what the song they sing is, Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. Salvation doesn't belong to any church. Salvation doesn't belong to any religion. Salvation doesn't belong to, as long as you're sincere about your faith. Salvation doesn't belong to, I can save myself through good works. Salvation comes from God and only God. And it's not just any God. It's our God. It's a personal God. 
It's Yahweh. It's the true God. And it's the Son, the Lamb, Jesus Christ. That's where salvation is found. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4.12 says, no one else. There's no one else who can save you. There's no other name that can save you. And that's one of the most unpolitically correct things you can say in 2018. And yet the Bible is very clear about this. That there is no other name except the name of Jesus Christ that can save you. No religion, no church, no belief, nothing except the name of Jesus. Salvation is found in one place and one person and his name is Jesus. Look at verse 9 with me. The question that we ended up with at the end of chapter 6 was this. Who can stand? Who can stand? And the answer is this. Those who are sealed with his spirit, who are washed in the blood of Jesus. They may even be martyred or killed. They may suffer, they may experience loss, they may experience grief, sickness, persecution, rejection or false accusation. But they will stand. Look at what it says. After this I looked and there before me was a great multitude standing in his presence that no one could count from every nation, tribe and people and language. And what are they doing? They're standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Who can stand? Those who are sealed with the Spirit. Those who are washed in the blood. They're the only people who can stand in the presence of God. We can come through it, no matter what we're facing, because we know that it has an ending. There's a reward at the end. Let's finish with verses 15 to 17. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve from day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not be down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Those who stand in this life, through persecution, tribulation, trial, struggle and suffering, will stand in his presence forever. That's the promise. That's our assurance. That is not just pie in the sky when we die. That is the hope of the gospel that we stand on. One day it will all be worth it. On Tuesday I took a train to Dublin to see a friend called Graham. Graham for five years was my right-hand man in Dublin. Big guy, rugby player. Lawyer, entrepreneur, just ordained to the ministry in the last year. Lovely wife was my worship pastor when I was in Dublin. Three young girls, all under 10. Two years ago, Graham was diagnosed with cancer. They thought they'd got rid of it, it came back. They thought they'd got rid of it, it came back. They thought they'd got rid of it, it came back. Two Thursdays ago, they called him in and said, there's nothing more we can do. We're stopping your treatment. And he's got days or weeks to live. And so on Tuesday I went down to see him. and That's him in, if you go to the next side, that's him in the red there. My friend Barry happened to pop in well as there as well. And uh, do you know what he's doing? As well as 
saying his goodbyes and doing all the things that people do in this situation of preparing his funeral and all those sorts of things. When I arrived and he had a laptop in front of him and he had a pile of books in front of him and he said, come here, do you see this? Come, do you see this? And I sat beside him. And I said, what are you doing? He says, I'm studying the 1859 revival. And I said, you're what? He said, I'm studying the 1859 revival. And I said, why? He said, because I've studied, he's, he's an ordained church of our ministry. He says, I got these books from the library that are never meant to leave the library, but my brother managed to sneak them out. They're <laughs> over 100 years old. And he said, that's the response of the Church of Ireland to the 1859 revival. And he said, look at the titles, and they were all negative. The Church of Ireland largely shut the revival down. And he said, I'm studying this because I believe revival is coming back to Ireland. And I want to write a warning, a gentle warning from a dying man to say, don't make the same mistake again. I mean, just incredible. That that is what he's doing. In his last days, he is, he's, he's as passionate about God as he's ever been. Why? Because he is sealed. And as you can see there, I don't know if you can see it in the photograph. Excuse me. He's in a wheelchair. He has absolutely no power in his legs. That's only been in the last week. He's lost all power in his legs. <laughs> but he's standing. It says, who will stand? He's standing. And so what we need at this time, we need courage. We need to worship when it hurts. And in these last days, we need to keep our eyes on the ancient of days. And when everything around us is being shaken, we need to be confident that we are part of a kingdom that can never be shaken.